All right, well, we're jumping into a new series this morning called Elephants in the Room. And uh, for those of you who don't know what uh, that is all about, it's basically, uh, we're going to talk about some uncomfortable things that no one wants to talk about <laughs> over these next number of months. It's going to take us through, actually, next number of weeks, it's going to take us through uh, November and right up until the, and I hate to say it, Christmas season. Uh, Christmas is coming. Some people are rejoicing. Other people are going into the fetal position and uh, uh, starting to tremble. But uh, there's a cartoon I, I found this week, and it says, Only Alan was prepared to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And uh, it's, isn't that the, just the way it seems to go, is that we're not ready and willing to uh, identify something or talk about something until it's negatively affecting us. And then, even then, we kind of are a little hesitant to, to bring it up. But over these next number of weeks, I truly believe as pastor, there are things that we just simply need to talk about. I don't want it to be a, a sledgehammer coming over our heads, but really in the spirit that, that the Lord wants to, to bring into this place that we would move to a more God-honoring place in all of these areas of our lives. You know, families are notorious for elephants in the room. Uh, there are things guaranteed in your family that's it's just kind of awry and yet no one wants to talk about. Um, how about uh, organizations, maybe the workplace that you're at, um, or a, a group, that uh, a community group that you're a part of. There are elephants in the room, things that aren't going uh, well, or there are problems present, but oh, just don't talk about it. I think churches as well are not exempt from elephants in the room, and thus this series. You know, all throughout history, even in the New Testament, uh, this was taking place. Not just churches in the 20, 21st century, but churches throughout history. Um, so much so that Paul had to deal with a lot of this. Paul, if you know if his writings, you're familiar with his writings, he wasn't one to tiptoe around issues. He would simply say things as they were. He would speak truth, and that was something that was necessary and needed in the New Testament church. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to look at chapters 10, 11, and 12, not in entirety, but just snippets from each of those. So uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start there. But um, something that you need to know, it, it, early on in this letter, in the, in the second letter to uh, this church at Corinth, um, Paul talks about or refers to in his letter a painful visit that he is going to make to this church. And I don't think any of us approach issues like this with a whole lot of joy and excitement. I must admit that... Uh, uh, planning out this sermon, sermon series, I uh, asked myself often, um, do you really want to do this? Um, even this morning, waking up, it wasn't like I woke up, it's like, whoa, I get to preach this sermon. Yes, we get to address some, uh, some touchy subjects. But yet at the same time, we need to acknowledge that these are things that in order for us, as I mentioned, to move to that more God-honoring place, we, we need to talk about. And Paul felt this way as well. He said, even though this is going to be a painful visit, it's something that's necessary. It's something that's needed to do. Um, over in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 9, he says this. He says, I'm not trying to frighten you by my letters. 
So this is, he's kind of premising it and saying, listen, this is something that's, that's not fear-mongering. It's not whipping you into shape. This is out of love. This, is, this comes out of great affinity that I have for you. Over in chapter 11, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he says, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with, and that, that phrase there is to tolerate or just to ignore the essentials. You put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one you preach, or the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe. You're putting up with these things, and you're not even thinking of them. It's not really deliberate. You're not saying, hey, I'm going to throw out the gospel and, and hold on to these false teachings. No, it's just, it's inadvertently and it's, it's just creeping in. Take a look at, at 2 Corinthians 12, chapter 12, verse 20. He continues. He says, for I am afraid that when I come to you, I won't like what I find. And you won't like my response. We're going to have some disagreements here. I am afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Yes, I am afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence and I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasures. And he, he sums that up by saying, you know what, I'm going to come and, I, and I'm, I'm afraid that what I'm going to find is a church that is not being the church that Christ wants it to be. And it, as I mentioned before, this isn't a sledgehammer over their heads. This is a, a nudging and encouraging, hey, let's talk about these things. Let's talk about what God has for each and every one of us. And I truly believe that, that, that Corinth was a very special church. You see, it wasn't in the Bible Belt. It wasn't in this, this, uh, this surrounding Christian environment. It was a church in a very pagan setting. Uh, Corinth was a place, not uh, unlike our 21st century church, where, where everything was accessible. There were a variety of religious expressions. There were Greek gods and pagan beliefs and rituals. There was good, bad, and everything in between. There was Gnosticism and atheism and pantheism and polytheism and animism and you name it-ism. Everything going on here. And it was also very, very hedonistic. A very self-indulgent, self-gratifying culture. And there's this church right in the middle of it all. And there's this clash of cultures. This daily rub between what God had for them and what was going on outside of the doors. And truly, church, this is North American church today. It's an ongoing conflict of cultures. We're rubbing shoulders every day with, with our, our culture. And it's easy for these lines to become blurred. What's acceptable? What's unacceptable? What's right? What's wrong? What's beneficial? What's harmful? And there's a daily scrutinizing of this. 
And this is why I believe we need to uh, jump into the series and talk about these things. These core non-negotiables that I believe churches have migrated away from. Things that we as crossroads are struggling with. And God is simply saying, hey, let me nudge you back to this place that I have for you. Today I want us to look at pride and selfishness. In coming weeks, we're going to address some other things, but, but today, particularly, pride and selfishness. And hear me, I love that Crossroads is a church like Corinth, that we haven't barricaded ourselves behind these holy walls, and we have these little holy huddles, and we go out and we, we only talk to those sanctified people in our community, and we, and we, we don't want to be, be somehow... Um, tainted by, you know, we are a church that is deliberately engaged and connected in our community. We do that. Personally, you do that. Corporately, we do that. But with that comes, hear me, with that comes unintended and unexpected problems. We are situated smack dab in the middle of a world solely focused on themselves. Self-absorbed self-interested, where self-help and self-serve is of utmost importance. If you needed any more evidence of this, the creation of the selfie is kind of the, the icing on the cake, right? Look at me. Here's me. Admire me. It's a self-focused society we live in, and sadly, Christians aren't exempt. I shared this in the first service. I'm kind of being transparent here, but I must admit, um, if if there was a um, the worst case scenario and the worst place that I would want to be, it would be this. It would be a Christian concert or a conference where there's general admission seating. Have Have any of you ever been to? Uh, you've obviously not had the experiences I had. You know, if you wanted hell on earth for me, it's there. This is just, and it's a sad state of affairs, and and I understand it's not everyone. A few bad apples ruin it for them, but for the most part, I remember Dan and I last year, we were at this this conference that we went to, and there's thousands of people out front, and it's a Christian conference that we're at, and it's general admission seating, and you want to to see self-serving, self-interested Christians Just tell them that there's places of prominence and good seating inside and they have to fight for it. And sadly, I kind of jest and it's it's kind of a joke, but at the same time, why is it that Christian communities and Christian uh, groups of people are not exempt from this thing called selfishness? When Scripture talks so blatantly about it, why do we struggle with these things? Why is that the case? Why do we tolerate? Why, do, why don't we speak up? Why does this continue? And in some ways, and we'll talk about this in a second, but it's, it somehow gets veiled in a virtue of confidence and courage and, and boldness, but in reality, it's a sin, and sadly, we tolerate that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20, and there's a, a funny yet sad story 
in Matthew 20. And, and it's this, this story, and the culmination of this is Jesus and his disciples, and he's been talking about his kingdom, and his kingdom ruling and reigning, and it will be one that lasts forever, and, and his disciples are going to literally hold positions and sit on thrones in this kingdom. And he's talking figuratively, and he's talking about the future, and, and the disciples are kind of salivating about what this sounds like. This sounds awesome. We're a part of Jesus' posse, and we're going to ride in and rule and reign. We're going to overthrow the oppressive governments that are around, the, the oppression and those things that are coming against. And, and Jesus is going to rule and reign. His kingdom will rule forever and ever, and we get to be a part of that leadership team. Woo! This is what they're thinking. And yet, they start kind of uh, analyzing this, and they start thinking, hmm, well, there's 12 of us. Hmm, I wonder how many thrones there are. I wonder how, how prominent those thrones are going to be. I wonder uh, where in that room of that, that, that grand hall uh, we are going to be sitting, and, and two of them in particular, James and John, kind of come up with this idea, we got to kind of hedge our bets on this, and we got to talk to the chief. And you all know the story in Matthew 20, verse 20. It says, then the mother of James and John, the other reference that it comes up in the Gospels, it's James and John personally, not the mother. Mom is there, but they're the ones who are asking. But here in Matthew's account, he says, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? Jesus asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. And you're like, oh my goodness, did she really ask this? Are you serious? I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that and somebody's come up to you and you're like, did you really just ask that? Like, it's one thing to think it, it's another thing to say it. And here they just out and blatantly said it. Mom said it. They said it. It's like, hey, we got an idea, Jesus. How about this? How about these places of prominence? One on your left, one on your right. I, when I, every time I read this story, I can't help but to think of the Embry family vacations from Vancouver down to California. And who got to ride shotgun? And back then, you know, mom was there. She got to sit in the front seat. But back then, there weren't just two seats in the front seat. There were three. And shotgun to us was the middle seat, right? Place of prominence where you weren't going to get car sick going down uh, um, the, the California Coastal Highway 1, you know, the thing that goes like this. You weren't going to get car sick in the back seat. You're going to be able to see out the front. And you'll be able to look. It was a place of prominence because you're next to dad, between mom and dad. You could carry the conversation. You could determine what restaurants you're going to eat at. How about McDonald's again? Right? It was a place of prominence. So what would we do? We would, we would walk out of the house or walk out of the hotel uh, on vacation, and what would, what would one of us say? Shotgun. He called it. You called where you were going to sit. You called the place of prominence, right? Well, well, we started getting wiser to this. That We just knew the routine that you're going to walk out and get going out to the car, and one of the brothers is going to beat you to that shotgun. So what do you do? A smart brother kind of goes to dad a day or two before and says, hey, dad, we're going to go on this vacation, right? Yes. 
well, wouldn't it be great if your favorite son could sit up front with you? And, um, you know, so I'm just, just so you know, I'm calling shotgun right now. It's like two days before. So then what happens? You're walking out of the house, you're walking out of the hotel, and, and you're get, going to get in the car, and uh, your oldest brother, <laughs> which is his birthday today, so happy birthday, Glenn. Um, anyways, uh, he would call shotgun, and I'd just be sitting there smiling, going, sorry, it's already been called. What? You didn't call it. Yeah, I called it two days ago. You did what? What's well, this whole one-upping, right? We want to take that place of promise. We want to, and this is exactly the childish, foolish stuff that was going on with the disciples. This is what was happening, this place of prominence. They wanted this to be the case. And so what did Jesus do? He didn't acquiesce to them. He didn't, he didn't fold. He, he, he called them out on it. He said, for one, you really don't know what you're asking because there's a whole lot more sacrifice than there is esteem in those two positions, particularly on the right and his left. If you really think of it, when, when the Lord comes into his kingdom, what's on his left and what's on his right is two other crosses, and he's going to die. So what, he, what they're really saying is, hey, can we die next to you? So that's a sermon for another time, but they were looking for the place of prominence, and Jesus calls them out. Why does he call them out on it? It's because it's wrong. Because it's a sin of selfishness, and it's wrong. And you see, somewhere we've lost that. In our lives and in our church, we've lost this delineation between what's right and what's wrong. So over the next month, this is what I want. We're going to stop and examine some of these things that Jesus Himself says, "Don't do that anymore." Just would you stop? And would you would you embrace my plan for your life? Not just do what you feel is right. I believe we're called to identify where we've allowed sin to permeate and pollute our lives personally and our lives corporately. You know, on a lighter note. Um, Many of you have taken these, um, these self-assessment tests and, and you've passed them with, uh, um, with superior scores, particularly the one you know you're a redneck if. You know, you've, you've just passed those with flying colors. But, you know, you've had those assessments that you know you're the if that and you go through and you go, well, okay, I guess I'm a redneck or I guess I'm Canadian or whatever it might be. On a more serious tone, what I want, I've written some, written some things down, and, and I want us to do a little bit of, of self-examination this morning. And along the lines of, you might be struggling with, well, let me premise that by saying we all struggle with selfishness and pride. We all do. To varying degrees. But along the lines of, um, you might be struggling if... And I want to I read some things. And as I do, would you simply just take these things to the Lord and just say, is this me, Lord? And, and hear me, this is not in a condemning way. This isn't a hammer to the head. This is simply saying, Lord, would you examine my heart? Search me, O oh God. See if there's some wicked ways in me and, and turn my heart back to you. And so as I read through these, just ask yourself, Lord, is that me? Is that me? Is this true? And here's the thing. Look for truth. Be honest with yourself. You might struggle with selfishness and pride if you crave or seek out preferential treatment. If you feel like you're deserving, exclusive, you deserve a different level of care than other people do. You might struggle with this if you search out places or positions of prominence. You feel you need to be seen or admired 
or acknowledged. You might have a problem with this if you have two sets of rules. One for you and one for everyone else. You hold others to a higher standard than you hold yourself to. Uh, Just being honest, this has been a struggle for me for a good part of my life. It's called legalism. And it's founded in selfishness and pride. And it's something that we need to be willing to lay down. You might struggle with this if your opinion is the only opinion that matters and that others' opinions don't. If you feel you only participate or support things that go your way. And when they don't, you're quick to back away or or drop your involvement. You might struggle with this if you feel more intelligent or more wise than other people. And that you have the point of view that is the more correct one or the more accurate one. You feel more important, more valued than others. And you see all of these lead to a, a smugness, an arrogance, and truly a pretentious heart. You know, I got thinking of this, and, and how is it that, that we, we land here as, as Christ followers? And in some ways, in keeping with the trend and, and kind of the pattern, I believe that there are things that start good and healthy. And sadly, the more that we tinker with things, the more we mess things up. And a lot of this is based in goodness, and a lot of this is based in truth, but what it ends up doing is it's truth that gets skewed and distorted. And a couple of things that came to mind is really, you think about it, what does Scripture talk about us and who we are? We're created in God's image. We are are valuable. We are the, the apple of His eye. We are children of God, and there's a sense of pride. There's a sense of of belonging, there's a sense of value and self-worth that comes with that. And that's a good thing. But yet left to its own devices and left to our own uh, uh, working out, it gets twisted. In the same way, we're, we're told and we experience that the, the Word of God is accessible to us and that He speaks to us and that, that there's wisdom and there's insight that comes from that. And with that comes confidence and assurance. And, and with confidence and assurance, though, you take that out, and you, you, you take that out to a, another degree and it begins to get twisted and, and warped. So what begins as, as being children of God, confident and and courageous, sure, and certain of who we are, which are all good things, it leads and has a tendency to lead to pride and to arrogance. And you see, we need to let truth speak loudly in our lives. You see, when Christ came, Scripture in John 1, it says that He came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's an an incredible amount of grace that comes with Jesus Christ, God's Son, but there's also the truth And we need to cling to that truth. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we we are. But rather we ought to examine ourselves and, and search our hearts. And he uses this word with sober judgment. Not being overly condemning, but not being overly permissive. 
We need to find that sweet spot. We need to let the truth of the Holy Spirit speak loudly in our lives when it comes to these issues. Over in Philippians 2, if you want to turn there, there's a great preamble to a, a, a famous section of, of Scripture in Philippians 2. And Paul just continues on this idea of humility and how Christ came and his attitude and his purpose and, and his conduct and his character were along these lines. And, and he says this to the Philippian church in Philippians 2 verse 3. He says, don't be selfish. If you need to go any further than that, it, 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 you could just stop right there. Don't be selfish. There's the sermon in a nutshell. But he goes on, he says, don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Just stop there for a second. That's hard, isn't it? I think at times we, we think enough is just thinking of others adequate or maybe on par with us. But here Paul is saying, I want you to think of others as better than yourself. Better. Treat them that way. He says, don't look... Out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Man, you need a to-do list for this week? Can we look at the interests of others? And then he goes on, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. You see, sin of self is not an insignificant thing. Selfish and pride... Selfishness and pride is not an insignificant thing. I believe that pride and vanity and selfishness is a cancerous disease and a dangerous line to cross. Hear me, I believe that selfishness is, a, is the work of the enemy and it undermines the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And hear me, I believe it is key in undermining the, the unity in the body of Christ that, that Jesus Christ paid his life and paid so dearly for us to encounter. It undermines unity, it undermines community in the body of Christ. And we're called to set it aside and we're called to consider others better than ourselves and come to serve as Christ did. You know, we have a, a tradition here at, at Crossroads and, and I brought it with me from Illinois. Um, and it's a tradition that when we, when we commission a pastor here, we give them two things. We give them a Bible and we say we want you to lead in truth, we want you to lead with the Word of God and teach truth and, and hold the gospel of Jesus Christ high. Live this out. Teach it. Live it. Breathe it. We want you to do that. And there's another gift that we give to, to pastors when we commission them, and it's a cloth. And this is a cloth that was given to me back in 1999 when we moved uh, to Decatur, Illinois from Canada. And... The leadership there gave me a Bible. They handed it to me and said, we want you to lead. We want you to, to, to know this and teach it and live it out and teach us the Word of God. But we also want you to have this. And I'd like to think that they went to a really, really nice store, maybe even to Walmart and got it. But, you know, truth be told, they went to the kitchen and they pulled this out of a drawer, stained and marred and messed up and And we tell all of our pastors here, and I'll never forget when it was told to me, 
the leadership handed me the cloth and they said, we want you to serve. We want you to lay your life down as Jesus did. You know, it's the, the image of the, the waiter. What can I do for you? Not what can I do for me, but what can I do for you? And you see, folks, we live in a, in a society that's all about me. It's all about what is in it for me. What do I get out of it? What is pleasing to me? What is appealing to me? What will exalt me? And Jesus says, you know what? If you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the lowest. If you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. It's so counterculture, and it's, it's not easy. But pastorally, can I say to us, not to you, to us as a church, let's do better. There's a lot of me going around. There's a lot of self wrapped up in what we do. And once again, this isn't a, a sledgehammer over the head. This is simply, I believe, the Spirit of God saying, let's move. Let's move to that more God-honoring place. Let's lay aside our own needs for the needs of others. Over in Mark chapter 10, let me close with this. Worship team, if you want to come join us up here. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. He said, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I invite you to bow your heads. Let's close our eyes. And church, I believe it's time for us to stop. I believe it's time for us to repent. I believe it's time to repent to our friends. Repent to our church family. Repent to our spouse. To our kids. It's time to repent to our community. Lord, it's so easy for us to turn the arrows that, so that they face us to funnel things toward us, the resources towards us, the accolades toward us, the applause toward us, the recognition toward us. Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ in all that we do, to set aside the pride, to set aside the arrogance, to set aside the selfishness, and to live more like you've called us to, to serve and to give our lives as you gave yours. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.